Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. This is the 192nd edition of the program. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm Stefan Christoph. On the broadcast today, I will be sharing a conversation that I had with journalist, radio host, and author Sonali Kolhatkar. Sonali recently published a book called Rising Up, The Power of Narrative in Pursuing Racial Justice. This book looks at narrative shift and the power of social movements to change our stories as a society. We talk about what this means in terms of migrant justice. We talk about what this means in terms of contemporary events, current events in the world, particularly around the dehumanization of the Palestinian people that is happening right now. Sonali has worked for decades in community-oriented media and is an important voice. I'm really happy to share this conversation with Sonali today on Free City Radio. Here it is. I am a multimedia journalist. I cut my teeth in radio journalism, uh, being a broadcaster on community station KPFK in Southern California for many years, nearly two decades. I expanded into television as well. I've also been writing. I, I since 2000, helped to run a nonprofit called the Afghan Women's Mission, which does solidarity work with Afghan feminists. Um, and so I co-wrote a book in the early 2000s about that. And uh, most recently, I joined Yes Magazine as their racial justice editor, where I edit stories, I write stories. Um, I also have been a weekly columnist, uh, first with Truthdig, and then when Truthdig went on a hiatus, I switched over to the Independent Media Institute, where I am currently the senior correspondent with their Economy for All project. And as you mentioned, I wrote a recent book as well, and my new book is one that just came out uh, from City Lights Books in July. It's called Rising Up, The Power of Narrative in Pursuing Racial Justice. And I actually just signed a book contract for, for a third book um, that I'll hopefully be able to start talking about publicly shortly. But yeah, I, I it's fairly, it's a, it's a pretty busy career, um, but I, I am involved in many, many different aspects of journalism from broadcasting to writing and editing and books, etc., well, a through line in a lot of your work is about narrative and uh, reshaping narratives. As we're seeing right now, narratives can um, both be used to hold up demands for justice, but also narratives can be used in incredibly violent ways to dehumanize, as we're seeing right now um, in relation to the Palestinian people of, of Gaza. Um, narratives are so important and framings of power and maybe in this context um, you could just share a bit more about um, your book Rising Up and you know sort of the importance of framing uh, it's so important and I think often is sort of left out in the the grind and uh, emergency vibe of media reporting. Yeah, I think it is, you know, so important for us to acknowledge in explicit ways that storytelling shapes our culture and shapes our worldview and therefore shapes policy. We are all the stories that we tell about ourselves and what we know about other people is based on the stories that we hear about other people. That can be through the news media, through pop culture and film and television, through social media, 
um, through talking to one another. And so I define narrative as intentional storytelling, the ways in which we characterize communities and individuals. And in my book, I critique those in- industries that I know most intimately. One, of course, is the media. And I talk about how the right-wing media has been, you know, chief among the purveyors of racist narratives, but also the corporate so-called liberal media has not done enough to challenge racist narratives and has often perpetuated them themselves insidiously with a veneer of, you know, under the veneer of professionalism and so-called objectivity. And um, I also then point out how independent media have been on the front lines of challenging those racist narratives and putting forward narratives that are rooted in racial justice and that further racial justice. I apply a similar critique to Hollywood and the film industry, which is, you know, arguably the most important and influential narrative setting industry in the world, not just in the United States, helping us form opinions through storytelling on the screen of people and how independent filmmakers, but also filmmakers of color in particular, infiltrating Hollywood and rewriting uh, race-based narratives. And I also go into social media a little bit, uh, education, you know, critical race theory and uh, history education, and how individuals can engage in narrative shifting ourselves. And I want to be really clear that as a journalist who's engaged in narrative work myself, I, you know, we can't just uh, focus on policy shifting without narrative, which is what, you know, a lot of organizers have traditionally done. But neither can we focus on just narrative shifting without the policies, which is what a lot of, you know, uh, people in the media have done or a lot of corporations, you know, think that if they just uh, declare slogans like Black Lives Matter, that that, that'll magically translate into actual change. We need uh, policy shifting to go hand in hand with narrative work. And that ensures that the policies of progressivism that we adopt have a mass emotional buy-in from the communities that are affected. And ultimately, my goal is to help us achieve and work toward racial equity in a country, you know, I'm here in the United States, in a country where we are having a dramatic demographic shift. You know, we are becoming a, a, a nation of minorities, a majority minority nation. White people are losing majority status but they retain a stranglehold on power. And there's this white conservative fear of a multiracial democracy. And that helps explain why we're seeing this resurgence of white supremacy and fascism. And in order to really get mass buy-in for a multiracial democracy, which benefits everybody, we need to start doing very serious narrative shifting work and acknowledge that that work is already being done and you know think about ways in which we can uplift that. Thank you so much, Sonali, for outlining all of that. Um, you touched on many critical points. Um, so just drawing on one of them, um, looking at the political landscape in the US, and you, you talked about uh, changing demographics. Obviously, that is not just in the United States. Uh, we see similar dynamics in the Canadian context, especially in the cities. Um, 
there is this move, and you mentioned it, where we see corporations or even major political parties changing rhetorical frameworks, um, you know, whether it's around Black Lives Matter or, you know, in the Canadian context, it would be around acknowledging, you know, the violence of Canada's colonial um, construction in relation to Indigenous people. But then you see the, the discourse but we don't see policy change. So that leaves a lot of space for violence to continue on various levels. So anyways, just digging into that point a bit more, if you could talk about that. Yeah, we need to hold um, policymakers accountable. And there needs to be a demand, a mass broad-based demand to for, for, for political figures to live up to their ideals. It's just not enough to state that one is on the side of human rights, but then support an inhumane campaign of bombing. It's not enough to say that one is on the side of racial justice and then support pouring more money into racist policing. Um, it's, you know, we have to relentlessly call out hypocrisy and double standards. And that's where the sustained activism comes in. For me as a journalist, I am constantly looking for better media coverage because a lot of activism is taking place on the ground and it gets either ignored by the corporate media that have, you know, these huge platforms or it gets misrepresented by them. Um, right. Like, for example, last weekend, we saw this massive, huge uh, gathering of protests and protesters demanding the uh, end to Israel's war on Gaza, a ceasefire and an end to the occupa occupation. Um, and it was I, arguably the largest pro-Palestinian mobilization in the history of the United States. And it got very little mainstream news coverage. There was one article in the Washington Post that was headlined, Flooding D.C. Streets and Bashing Biden, Thousands Demand Gaza Ceasefire. Bashing Biden. I mean, what a strange way to put it, right? So um, instead of kind of casting the story as the, the fact, as reflective of this public hunger for an end to the U.S.-backed Israeli war, it kind of casts the protesters as people with a, a, a um, chip on their shoulder, right? Just people who are just kind of angry. And so I'm always looking for better media coverage of grassroots movements that are the ones holding elected officials accountable and insisting that they live up to their stated ideals. Uh, because that's what I do as a journalist. You know, our organizers do the thing that they do best, which is organize. And I think together, we we strengthen our democracies. So in terms of uh, thinking about um, how a lot of what you've described plays out, um, I think, you know, in this particular moment, there is a lot of focus on, you know, the daily realities in Gaza, for example. Um, you know, in, in other contexts, there's a lot of focus on, you know, the particular um, ways an injustice is playing out uh, due to like systemic issues or policies of the powerful in particular places. And I think that your work is really Im important for a number of reasons, but it also is an illustration that 
it's important when people step up and do stuff <laughs> to put it very simply right um you know i think for example about like other contexts around the world um you know we could look to like the context of france where you know independent journalists and people on social media are you know rightfully challenging the government's attempt to ban protests or you know all the way in india where we see people challenging this like total adoption of you know the right-wing discourse of the government in india under the bjp but people are doing stuff and making a difference through their work like you are and i think it's always you know it's, it seems very simple but it's always so moving and important to hear how people are doing that which i i understand your book gets into yeah, you know, people are, my book focuses specific, specifically on narrative work and how people are doing that. So specifically focuses on how independent journalists have changed the narrative, how independent filmmakers um, shift storytelling, um, how educators, you know, are, are fighting back and, and doing that very, very effective work. Um, but yeah, the, the strategies of how change happens are very, very important for organizers to figure out. And what's heartening to me is that now uh, more and more the idea of narrative change is being adopted. We're seeing organizations that are moving beyond just having, you know, a communications department or like one person doing their media strategy and actively adopting narrative change strategies alongside their policy shifting. And it's really hard to to drop bombs on people, or it's really hard to shoot at people without consequences, unless you have a narrative industry that dehumanizes them. So the, the dehumanization of people is a precursor to policies that harm. And therefore, if we want to reverse the policies of harm, and we want to uphold social justice, we need to have a, a very strategic plan of doing the narrative work that rehumanizes or just in general humanizes uh, individual people. And so you're seeing organizations do very, very important narrative work in telling in storytelling and telling the stories of their constituents in doing oral history projects. Um, there's one organization that I uh, mention in my book, the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights in Los Angeles or Chirla, who organized around a film that they funded, crowdfunded actually. And it was a fiction film and it was a story called, uh, it was a movie called America's Family that made it into the theaters. And it was about a mixed status immigrant family, um, some members of whom get, you know, picked up by immigration enforcement here in the U.S. And the battle to, to and the struggle in that family to try to, to stay together. And it was a really, really cool movie. And it was amazing to see this organization that had been doing nitty gritty political organizing work for many, many years, understand how important it was to start doing very strategic storytelling around their constituencies, the people who they are closely working with. So, you know, yeah, it's, 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 it's actually a very, very exciting time for narrative shifting work. And also another point that seems quite important as we see a growing, continuously growing role of social media. 
so a lot of these social media institutions obviously are controlled by corporations there's very little basically no democratic um, mechanisms you know when we're talking about x or meta etc and uh, this makes me think about community radio and uh, institutions where people actually also gather in person of course like protests and community organizing spaces so important but also like community television or community radio where people can actually meet others and create work together not just in the isolation of of you know uh their smartphone obviously social media is important but but maybe you could draw out a bit about how like community media institutions play a role in shifting narrative absolutely you know it's amazing to me over and over and over again how community media is on the right side of history and is on the front lines of covering movements that the corporate media are so late to covering. For example, in the US, the civil rights movement, when it was unfolding, you had Pacifica Radio, which I used to work for, you know, that was founded in 1949, on the front lines of covering the civil rights movement, putting microphones in front of Rosa Parks and James Baldwin and Dr. Martin Luther King. And at that time, the mainstream corporate media really considered these figures that are now, you know, icon, icon, uh, seen as icons. At that time, they were seen as fringe, radical, dangerous figures who really were not to be taken seriously. And it wasn't until years later that those figures that had were only given platforms in community and independent media were taken seriously by the corporate media and in hindsight were lionized. And we're seeing the same thing happen even today, even in the advent of social media. Social media sort of shortened the lag, the time lag between when community media covers something and when corporate media covered, because often social media shames the corporate media into covering stories that they would rather not cover or that they've traditionally ignored. But, you know, in 2020, the liberal corporate media discovered the slogan Black Lives Matter. But it was founded, you know, more than five or six years earlier when Trayvon Martin was killed in Florida by George Zimmerman and three black women uh, came up with this powerful, poignant and profound slogan Black Lives Matter that captured their anguish and pain over the fact that our country has dismissed the lives and the the dignity of black people. And at that time, the corporate media wasn't interested in covering it because they hadn't been covering racial injustice to begin with. So for them, it was a jarring slogan to say Black Lives Matter because it you know, was seen as black people wanting special treatment. Whereas in the independent media, the phrase made perfect sense because we had laid the groundwork for years covering stories of racial injustice and making clear that black lives had not mattered to American society. And you know, it wasn't until millions of Americans took to the streets of our cities in the largest racial justice uprising in history that the corporate media decided that Black Lives Matter was a slogan worth adopting 
because they, you know, were finally shamed into doing the right thing. And over and over again, community media has been on the front lines, has been on the right side of history, has been vindicated in covering grassroots social justice movements that the corporate media have been so late to covering. Right now, Black Lives Matter may have been accepted as an idea, but the teeth behind that movement is the idea of defunding the police. Because in order to make Black lives really matter, we need to move funding away from state repression and policing and into the things that actually keep all people safe, housing and education and healthcare. And that diverting of funding away from policing is is where the teeth of of the Black Lives Matter movement is, and the corporate media have yet to catch on to that. And they have rejected that idea Whereas the independent media in this moment is tackling that and grappling with that and, and explaining what that means and, and, and expanding on abolitionist frameworks around policing and prisons. So, you know, even in this moment, community media are ahead of the game. And who knows when corporate media will catch up to, to this new, you know, to this idea that's not new, but that, that is new to the corporate media and, and currently being rejected by the corporate media. So I hope that gives you some examples of how community media has constantly pushed the envelope and, and pushed the, been on the front lines of social justice coverage. Well, just a last point, and it's about process. Um, you know, in, in activism and community institutions, there's always a discussion around the process being as important as the goal, right? And and sort of this this sort of view that the way people work together and the way that we create things collectively matters, right? And that that can tie to really much bigger structures in our world, right? Like if we're thinking about um, due process, right? Like you talked about Trayvon Martin, right? And that was obviously an extreme um, example where basically a person became a vigilante and murdered a young black man, George Zimmerman, you mentioned, right? And this story was so um, illustrative of so many uh profound systemic issues and narratives play a role in that. Uh, you know, the other thing that comes to mind, I was watching Dana Pash on CNN interviewing Bernie Sanders recently. I don't know how I ended up there, but she was making these assumptions in her interview that, well, of course, Hamas in the context of Gaza needs to be wiped out. And the thing that kept coming to my mind was, okay, well, that's like, where, where are we going to go if there's just a blatant acceptance that international law doesn't matter or judicial process doesn't matter? Um, and you see where I'm going, but this, you know, and I really think so, um, I really uh, admire the, the topic of your book because narrative plays such a role in those processes of dehumanization and, and moving away from process where, you know, it's obvious what I'm saying. But if, if you could extend a bit on, on, on this, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that when we when we when we relentlessly humanize human beings it becomes extremely difficult to to demolish them to kill them to to wipe them away you know israel knows 
so well how important narrative is because Israel has built up and tried to to shift the narrative around the origins of Israel, you know, seeing it, casting the formation of Israel as a project of of um, people returning to their uh, long lost land, uh, likening themselves to indigenous people in the Americas, uh, demanding land back and uh, likening themselves to even black people here in the United States, whereas, and, and also being very, very, uh, you know, using, weaponizing Hamas's violence. It has been the biggest gift to Israel to have the state of Israel, I should say, to have a violent faction like Hamas um, commit all of its atrocities, because this is precisely the pretext that Israel needs to to show. See, look how brutal and barbaric these Palestinians are. Well, they say Hamas, but really it extends to all Palestinians when they talk about Hamas, because when they bomb, supposedly Hamas, they're bombing all Palestinians. Uh, Gal Gadot, the, the Israeli actress who played Wonder Woman, is uh, busy right now, not in Israel or in anywhere in the Palestinian territories, but in Hollywood. She's making the rounds of Hollywood executive suites with footage of Hamas's massacres because she understands how important it is for narrative setting industries to make sure they sh- they are influenced by Hamas's violence and atrocities. She's not showing them the violence of Israeli bombs on Gaza and, and, and the killing, you know, what, what it looks like when an entire society is being slowly wiped out and, and when what, it, what, what has happened when 3,500 Israeli uh, Palestinian babies have been massacred. Um, she's very, very uh, determined to fight the narrative war for the state of Israel, you know, former IDF soldier, and now uh, basically part of the PR core of the state of Israel in the suites of Hollywood um, filmmakers. And so this is the kind of thing that I think we need to understand this, the sophisticated machinery of dehumanizing people it goes hand in hand with the project of genocide. And, uh, you know, we, we, it's, it's very, it, once we, once we start to relate to people as human beings like us, we cannot kill them. And so the stories of the, the horrible stories of how Israelis were killed by Hamas and, and, and their background, their humanity has been centered in the media, but it's been centered in the media at the expense of Palestinian human beings who are not given the same uh, coverage, who are not given the same uh, exposure, you know, who, who, whose lives we know nothing about. We're not supposed to know that they had joys and laughter and struggles and uh, aspirations and goals and dreams that have now been wiped out. We're not supposed to know about, you know, the, the YouTube gamer, 10-year-old Palestinian kid who dreamed of getting 100,000 subscribers who's now been killed in Gaza. We're not supposed to know about the, the doctor and his family in Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza who were, who were you know, completely wiped out. Um, so the, the, it's very sophisticated um, narrative work that's being done on behalf of the state of Israel. And if we want to, and you know, Israel and Palestine is an example of a narrative war. There's many, many such battles being fought wherever there are injustices. And 
you know, we have to get very good at, at, at waging that narrative war ourselves of, in the interest of social justice, in the interest of, of human rights, of racial justice, of democracy. That was a conversation with Sonali Kohatkar. Her recent book is Rising Up, The Power of Narrative in Pursuing Racial Justice, and that is out through City Lights Books. This has been another edition of Free City Radio, which I host and produce. I'm Stefan Christoph. We air weekly on CKUT 90.3 FM at 11 a.m. on Wednesdays, on CGLO 1690 a.m. also in Geogeague, Montreal on Tuesdays at 1 p.m., on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg at 10.30 p.m. on Tuesdays, on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at 11.30 a.m on Wednesdays, on CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, BC on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. and Saturdays at 7 a.m., on Met Radio 1280 a.m. in Toronto at 5.30 a.m. on Fridays, and now on CKCU 93.1 FM in Ottawa on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Thank you so much for being with us. You can find our archives at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. We are also a podcast. Look us up through Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for being with us, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>